nobody seems to have been able to explain it or explain it away, and it still remains the world's only UFO crash scenario that is supported in that interpretation. My government documents that here in Canada are freely available. There's absolutely no controversy as to their origin or their authenticity. This is Tim Benall of BenallofAmerica.com with another edition of BOA Audio Season 2. It is June 9th, 2007, and we are at the very cusp of the final four episodes here for Benall of America Audio Season 2. This episode is the first of the final four. Our guest is Chris Stiles, Principal Investigator of the Shag Harbor Incident. The Shag Harbor incident, as we discussed with Paul Kimball about a month ago on the program, is one of the very best of all UFO cases. But what a lot of people don't know is, it happened in 1967. It was a fairly isolated incident, and for the most part, everybody kind of forgot about it until about 25 years later, when a guy by the name of Chris Stiles resurrected the case. The best way to put it is he's the Stan Friedman of the Shag Harbor case. This is the guy who put Shag Harbor incident on the map. It's a tremendously well-known case now in ufology. No one would have ever heard of it if not for Chris Stiles. So suffice it to say this guy is a tremendous researcher. Here's a little bit about what we're going to be delving into. We're going to talk about that fateful night, October of 1967, the Shag Harbor incident, what happened. What did people think was going on? How did that contrast with the government's interpretation of events? The mysterious and skeptical Father Gaffney, who came out against the Shag Harbor incident at the time, and the role of the media in covering the event as it happened. We're going to fast forward then 25 years later to Chris's resurrection of the Shag Harbor incident. We're going to find out why he decided to investigate it, who and what were the key elements in his investigation, and the fascinating new details he discovered about the Shag Harbor incident. This is a richly detailed edition of BOA Audio with the man who essentially discovered the Shag Harbor incident, one of ufology's very best cases. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Chris Stiles, let me give you a little bit of background on him. Chris Stiles is an active UFO researcher who investigates both classic and current UFO incidents that have occurred in Atlantic Canada. He is best known for his work on the Shag Harbor incident of October 4, 1967. His work on this case has had a great impact on how UFO crash scenarios are viewed within the field of ufology. In 1993, Chris received a modest research grant from the Washington-based Fund for UFO Research, which helped underwrite the expense of an on-site research effort at Canada's National Archives in Ottawa. In 1995, Chris directed an underwater search for physical evidence that may have remained on the seabed of Shag Harbor. That effort was funded by Paramount Television and resulted in several segments for their syndicated show, Sightings. He has appeared in several U.S. documentaries, such as the two-hour A&E production, UFOs 2, Have We Been Visited? Chris did much of the on-screen work and served as technical advisor in several Canadian UFO feature documentaries, such as Ocean Entertainment's The Shag Harbor Incident, 
and Northern Lights, a two-hour feature production of Roadhouse Films. His most recent on-camera appearance was in the U.S. History Channel's 60-minute feature documentary, UFO Files, Canada's Roswell, which was first broadcast in March of 2006. In 2001, Chris co-authored Dark Object with fellow UFO researcher Don Ledger. He has published several speculative papers on different aspects of UFO research and has presented at various UFO symposia. He can be reached via email at shagharbor at hotmail.com. S-H-A-G-H-A-R-B-O-U-R at hotmail.com. Let me put over Chris Stiles a little bit here before we kick off the interview. We actually had taped an original interview April 27th, but after the fact, it was riddled with technical difficulties and issues, and the sound quality was unbearable. We weren't even going to be able to use it, and I felt awful, and I got in touch with Chris and told him what was going on. So he came back on the program, we retaped the interview, we actually gleaned a lot more new details in this interview, and it wouldn't have happened if Chris hadn't been just gracious enough to overlook our technical feebleness and come back on the program to retape the episode. So hats off to Chris, I appreciate it tremendously, and I want to put him over here at the beginning of the program. And so, without any further ado, let's rock and roll. This interview was recorded last weekend, June 2nd, 2007. It's ultra fresh. Chris Stiles talking about the Shag Harbor incident on Banal of America Audio, Season 2. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Banal of America Audio. Our guest this week is the principal investigator, the man who pretty much put the case on the map. The case is the Shag Harbor incident. It's uh, as we had Paul Kimball on about a month ago, and he was talking about how the Shag Harbor incident uh, ranked in the top ten of UFO cases. And we wouldn't even know about the Shag Harbor incident if it wasn't for the fine work of this week's guest, Chris Stiles. He's the guy who pretty much did the legwork and, and did all the, the research to uh, get this information out there in the last uh, decade or so. He's been studying the Shag Harbor incident, resurrected it from uh, from pretty much the doldrums where no one really knew about it, and uh, rediscovered the, the Shag Harbor incident and put it on the map as far as UFO cases. He's done just tremendous work, and he's here on the program to talk about the Shag Harbor incident. Occurred October 4th, 1967, Shag Harbor, Nova Scotia. Here we are, the 40th anniversary of Shag Harbor, so it's great to have him on here to talk about the case. Chris, welcome to the show. Yes, it's a pleasure to be here, Tim. Well, let's start off with your bio, your background. You know, who is Chris Stiles, and uh, how did you gravitate towards an interest in the UFO phenomenon? Well, I'm an independent UFO researcher who uh, has been involved into looking in the phenomenon, of course, best known and most notably the Shag Harbor incident, since uh, early 1993. Um, I guess you could say it was on the job training for me. It probably shouldn't have been that way, but it seemed to work out all right. Um, in some ways, I like to think it was an advantage because I had little preconception about what should be done. And luckily for me, however, though, I... Uh, quickly established contact with some great people in the field that loaned their talent and suggestions, and I pursued it with vigor. Um, but uh, that, that is how it began. It was a humble beginning, and, um, you know, the reason it's prospered so well, I like to really credit more than anything the case. I always knew the case had depth, and uh, I think that my work's brought that out. Definitely, definitely. Let's dive into the Shag Harbor incident, no pun intended, and uh, why don't you start with uh, just give us like a thumbnail sketch of what is the Shag Harbor incident? What went down uh, that fateful night in October 1967 and the ensuing week or so of uh, fear? Okay. October the 4th, 1967 was a clear, moonless night with a very transparent sky over Nova Scotia, which is, uh, you know, somewhat unusual for most of the year. We tend to get more of them in that fall time of year. Uh, 
Uh, Shag Harbor, Nova Scotia is a fishing village on the coast that's at the extreme southwestern tip on the Gulf of Maine. Uh, and um, what was first seen was that a, se a series of uh, four sequential flashing lights was first seen to move in from an easterly direction toward the shoreline. Uh, these flashing lights flashed in an unusual sequence. They didn't have normal nav lights or other running lights, but it was simply four lights described as being 15 feet apart, implying a 60-foot object, at least in one dimension, and they would flash one, two, three, four, and then all together. And this pattern repeated. They hovered for a time over what's known as the sound in Inner Shag Harbor. And after several minutes, the object was seen to tilt to a 45-degree angle, and it descended rapidly to the water's surface and struck the surface, producing a bright flash and the sound of an explosion. Mm -hmm. Initially, seven witnesses from several different locations contacted the Royal Canadian Mounted Police Detachment in nearby Barrington Passage. Uh, they dispatched two cars to the scene, and eventually three officers were on scene, and a crowd had begun to form by the shoreline. When the officers arrived by the shore of Old Highway Number 3, they still, they themselves joined the crowd with being a witness to the UFO, which was now on the water, and now it appeared as a single large yellow glow. And we know that it was at least eight feet in one dimension vertically, because as it passed in front of some well-known marker buoys, it, it would eclipse them. Um, the object stayed on the surface for several minutes and either disappeared or sank. Most of them believed it, uh, it slipped beneath the surface. The officers were watching this through their field glasses. They had communicated with uh, two nearby NORAD bases, a radar base, and, uh, and another that was uh, the coordination center for submarine detection in the Atlantic. And a check with the Rescue Coordination Center with Search and Rescue in Halifax uh, let them know that there were no missing aircraft or none late for arrival. And the Mounties uh, commandeered a local boat and went out and checked the last known surface position of the UFO and found a patch of yellow foam that was 80 feet in width and a half mile in length. Wow. And uh, so something had definitely hit the water, and it was still bubbling up from below. Mm -hmm. implying that the object indeed had submerged. They searched until 3.30 that, that, uh, the next morning, and uh, then they uh, resumed the search the next morning at first light, and eventually this search went on for some days. It would involve Navy, Coast Guard, and lots of other uh, authoritarian agencies. Um, eventually, the search was canceled five days later. Nil results were reported to the media, However, uh, again, nothing conventional was suggested, and it was said that simply there was no results to the search effort, but it was the belief that indeed some unknown, unconventional object had crashed into the waters of Shag Harbor. And then the case uh, simply faded away over time, uh, lost media interest, and uh, was resurrected by me in the 90s, 26 years later. There you go. There you go. Let's, uh, before we dive into the 25 years later, let's uh, let's talk a little bit about what was going on at the time uh, when this happened. What's noteworthy about the case, I think, is that the the witnesses they they weren't really the ones who were saying it was a UFO. It was the government that said it was a UFO. They're the ones that tagged the UFO in the first place. A lot of the witnesses thought that it was a plane crash, right? Yes, that's correct. I mean, the seven initial reporting witnesses, all who contacted the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, simply said that they had seen lights enter the water, or perhaps there has been a, a plane crash. No one, I repeat, no one reported a UFO, and this is key. However, by the next morning, 
the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, the Navy, the military personnel that were arriving on the scene were all openly referring to it as a search for a UFO. Uh, it's quite unusual in that this is the reverse one usually sees in a crash scenario or in other kinds of sightings where the authoritarian agencies deemed it with that label. Now, uh, one of the other interesting things is that uh, on top of the fact that no one reported the UFO, the first resident who called uh, was known to the police and it was suspected that perhaps he had been drinking and they'd asked him and they were reluctant to respond to his single call. But before he left the area of the payphone, they called him back because the other calls had come in and he said, I can still see it moving on the water and he stayed there till they arrived. So. Um, you know, they took it seriously upon getting the second report, and certainly by the time they had seven calls, like, say, two cruisers were on the way. Um, but it's different. The other thing I'd like to remind your viewing audience is the fact that this is October 4th, 1967, in Canada. And with little explanation, I'll, I'll put this in some perspective. When I do a, a talk or I'm on the stage, I always make this point clear, particularly to U.S. audiences. There was no Roswell, yeah. not in 1967. Yes, I know it occurred in 47, but really that didn't come into the public's mind and interest, and now it's part of popular culture. But that didn't happen until the initial researchers, Stanton Friedman, Bill Moore, and others, began to open up that case in the late 70s and early 80s until the first book was published. Mm -hmm. So in 67, the point being is that None of these people were influenced by Roswell or cases like that. And in fact, any ufologist who would have been interviewed in the public eye in the 60s um, would have denied the possibility of crash scenarios. It wasn't taken seriously by uh, ufologists. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's a, it, it seems distant now, but th this is the backdrop to the case one must remember. So Shag Harbor stood alone. You know, it wasn't influenced by Roswell right now. It's kind of hard to remember that in our lifetime there was none, you know, at that point in time. It just wasn't known to the public. That's a good point to bring up. Yeah. Like, like you said, a lot of people think that uh, we've been talking about Roswell since 47, but it's not the case. We've been only talking about it since the 80s. Yeah. Like any of these cases with death, like Roswell, like Shea Carver, you have to see them in perspective. Look, and not only was it the fact that the witnesses didn't report a UFO, but concerns were running for the possibility of survivors. Like I say, some simply reported lights, and some said that they thought perhaps an airplane had crashed. Both were interpreting that possibility, right? Yeah. So as they went into their local bolts and went to the last known surface position, many of them described feeling sick to their stomach and being very concerned. The concern was for survivors. You know, they didn't know what they were going to see floating to the surface, and this was before any of them figured it might be a UFO. You know? Yeah. And, you know, it also explains some of the motivations. Many have asked me, well, why didn't they try to collect the phone? Why didn't they? They're out there with lights in the dark of night. There's no moon. Their concerns are purely for survivors. And what anybody would do, you know, people in the community come together and try to see what they can do. And as they're trying to make sense of this, and as the data is coming into them, they're just getting more and more puzzled. And some of them are even suffering, I suppose, from a degree of Oz factor, you know. Well, what do you mean by that? The Oz factor is something that many researchers, uh, it's a term that's used that, uh, it's kind of a blanket term that loosely describes the kind of psychological trauma that can be exhibited by witnesses when, you know, they're just suddenly in, uh, overwhelmed by the UFO phenomena by a sighting or encounter. Mm -hmm. And you see them and suddenly nothing makes sense anymore. Uh, although it's a little overdone, it's kind of what's portrayed in the movie Close Encounters. Yeah. 
you know, you know, suddenly they, they, you know, people are unable to work. They're unable to deal with family. Suddenly the universe shrinks and the only thing that's in it is themselves and the phenomena and them trying to make sense of it. Oh boy. I hope that doesn't happen to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I'll tell you, it's happened to many. And when I come into a case, it's, it's one of the factors I look for to decide whether it is a genuine UFO event. One of the things one would measure, right? When there's little other data to go by. Yeah. And, and, in fact, the lower key the sighting is, if you get that effect consistently consistently among the witnesses, it speaks more loudly of it probably being a genuine UFO event. You want us to be careful with that. It's kind of a sliding scale thing, but it's an indicator. Yeah. And then let's talk about one of the guys who was kind of a player in this. Uh, it sounds like he was kind of a player in um, the skeptical realm of ufology in Canada at the time. That's Father Bert Gaffney. He's a... Uh, He's mentioned in the UFO Files special on, on Canada's Roswell, the Shag Harbor incident, that uh, you not very kindly sent to me to, uh, to watch for the interview. And uh, it sounds like this Father Bert Gaffney was kind of a player in, in at the time uh, as far as debunking of UFOs go in Canada, sort of like a, a Canadian Phil Class or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. The, the late Father Michael Bert Gaffney is a, a, a very complex character. He was an astronomer and had begun uh, the astronomy program that continues to this day, including building the observatory that's at St. Mary's University in Halifax, which is a, a large liberal arts college. Uh, Father Gaffney wore many hats. I mean, he was a real estate salesman. He was an author, a historian, a Jesuit priest, of course, a professor. But yes, he was also a UFO researcher for the Canadian government through the auspices of the National Research Council. Mm -hmm. And um, Gaffney was personally a skeptic, a strong skeptic. Now, I think many of these people that have that label hung on them uh, aren't true hardcore skeptics. I mean, uh, you know, the first one to come to mind, known in the U.S., of course, is the late Carl Sagan, the celebrity astronomer, yep. who I actually would describe as a closet ufologist. <laughs> you know, once you know his opinions and what went on and look at some of his work from over the years. Yeah. In the case of Burke Gaffney, he's more of a hardcore skeptic like Phil Class. Although Phil Class liked Shag Harbor, by the way. We met in 96, right? And <laughs> he was very gracious about it. He said, uh, I probably just won't have much to say about it. And he never did. <laughs> <laughs> but he congratulated me for the work I did and thought it was significant. You know, it's well, good. Yeah. But Gaffney would have been more in that camp, more in that school of thought. He was a hardcore skeptic. Mind you, you know, we need them too. Oh, totally. But, yeah. The part that bothers me about that, I mean, we need skeptics, but what we don't need is the kind of techniques that some of them employed, and to a degree the father did that too. And what I mean is this, is that he presented himself in two different lights when it was convenient. To his students and to the press, he downplayed his interest in UFOs and said nobody should be interested, you know, there's nothing to come from the data, almost a Condon point of view, you know, yeah. there's nothing to be gained. And at the same time, we do know, I have some personal communications of his where he sent letters, uh, telexes, whatever, to the Royal Canadian Mounted Police uh, complaining and, in fact, demanding that he needed to get UFO reports quicker. Huh. And some of the correspondence with other astronomers, including Hynek, by the way, Jay Allen, the late J. Allen Hynek, mm -hmm. considered the granddaddy of all ufologists. Uh, when you went through this, it was clear that the man had a genuine interest in the phenomenon. Albeit, it may be uh, a skeptical interest, but one nonetheless. But that wasn't how he portrayed it to uh, his students or the public. And that's where I have a problem with the skeptics. Yes, we need them. Some of them even do good work. But they should play by one straight even hand, as 
hopefully a, a, an honest ufologist does. So mind you, <laughs> some of them do good and bad work too, you know. Exactly. Yeah. Or or many do try to do it from the armchair, which doesn't work out too well. <laughs> And then what about the media coverage of the event? Uh, in the special, they did a pretty good job of talking about just how this really became a media sensation, the uh, Shag Harbor incident at the time. Well, well, it did, and I think, I, I think the origin of that is, is interesting, too. I, I, I think one of the reasons it took off is, of course, it isn't every day, uh, even at that earlier time when I suppose you would say the audience was more naive, all of us, about the phenomena, right? Mm -hmm. I, I'm... It wasn't every day that a Canadian broadsheet, particularly one as conservative as the Halifax Chronicle Herald, would run a headline story, which was maybe something concrete in Shag Harbor UFO crash, RCAF, which stood for Royal Canadian Air Force. is isn't every day you see that as a headline story. It's more like something you might see in the National Enquirer. Yeah. Um, so I think that was the start of it. People were shocked that this conservative broadsheet ran with a headline story about a purported UFO crash in Nova Scotia. But from there, of course, it be quickly became a line story, and, you know, it, it catapulted across the press around the world and that, and, you know, garnered the initial attention. And, uh, you know, that with the, on top of the fact that local news coverage for television through the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation had shot film in the area, which exists and was incorporated in the documentary, and the fact that statements were made by the Air Desk, which was Canada's equivalent in those days of Blue Book. Yeah. Um, we're saying that, look, we believe this is the real thing. Uh, you know, raise the bar for this one, and it got attention, and so it should have got attention. And it only faded from attention when the search was canceled, and they said they found nothing. But bear in mind, at the end, that they never did explain it, and they said, look, we don't really know what it was looking for. We're certain something real went in the water. Guess it got away. It's one of those things. And I suppose if this had happened somewhere in the the Southwest in the U.S. or New York City or something. There would have been many books and movies about it, but since it happened in such an away location uh, where the economy was based on fishing, the economy was poor at the time, life was hard, people kind of shrugged and went home, made a sandwich, and went back to work, and it was forgotten. And now in the special, they talked to the reporter who first broke that story that came from... Ray McLeod, yeah. Yeah, there you go, from the Canadian Blue Book uh, Bureau or whatever. And then he sort of intimated that there was uh, that they sort of uh, iced the story, if you will. The newspaper kind of iced the story, and in the special, uh, they don't they don't really go uh, as far as to say cover up or anything like that. They just sort of implied or asked the rhetorical question: Was the newspaper bending to government pressure or something like that? Um, what okay. do you what do you think was going on there? You say it was a conservative newspaper, so it's yeah. totally within reason that you know yeah. they were embarrassed that they even had run it in the first. You know, they they could right. have had regrets about it, and that's why. And it had so nothing here, to do with the government. So what, here, what do you think happened there? Here's what happened that you wouldn't have seen in the feature documentary, right? Is that after the weekend went by and the search was canceled and nothing was found, the paper uh, received a number of calls, uh, basically regular clientele, who was uh, saying, could this be true? And some of them expressed fear or concern, like, you know, are we being invaded? Is this, could this be real? Yeah. You know? And the editor of the newspaper, who, uh, if it had come to his attention, would not, the owner and editor, by the way, Mr. Dennis, did not approve of the story in the release. And on Monday morning, after this had happened, and at that point, you know, uh, he called in Ray McLeod, the reporter, and the managing night editor, okay? Mm -hmm. And they had a severe dressing down. And, uh, you know, he, he literally threw the paper down and pounded his desk and said, you know what? We're scaring people. We're not in the business of scaring people. You're off the story. You 
should have known better. You're coming on days well, this kind of thing, you know? Yeah. It, it rolled downhill, as they say. And the thing is, um, uh, he assigned a reporter, which he felt he had better control of, who decided to cool it down over the next few weeks, did release a few stories that could be considered a debunking effort. Um, he was, in fact, one of the people interviewed was Burke Gaffney and some other research scientists that rather um, said, you know, that this was probably nothing much. It was probably misidentification or a super secret U.S. military device. Gee, they could have used that in Vietnam at the time, eh? But, yeah, yeah. I mean, because, and at the time, look, what, this couldn't be anything conventional. What, what then, even now, is both aerodynamic and hydrodynamic? You know, yeah. but anyway, um, that was the thing. But strangely enough, it was still in the headlines in all the weekly papers throughout northern Nova Scotia and elsewhere in the world. But the, the, the Herald was trying to distance itself from the headline story, yeah. trying to cool things down, and it did. But, you know, there's another thing revealed in that press record, Tim, that's very interesting. Mm -hmm. I looked through it in a very complete fashion, and one month after the incident and more than three weeks after the cancellation of the search, yeah. There's a story that appears in every paper in Nova Scotia, and most of them on the front page, and it says, military wants UFOs reported. Tells you who to report them to and what to do, you know, a very serious thing. This is all based upon Shag Harbor. So they're still looking, and there is still an investigation, even though the search for the object has been canceled. And that story is penned by Major Vic Eldridge. Now, he was the executive officer at the nearby back row base, which was a U.S. base on Canadian soil at the time. So there was still a continued interest in solving this, you know, even though it started to slip out of the public's mind, right? It's not every day you see these kind of appeals in Canadian newspapers. You know? Yeah. So the interest extended beyond the official search effort and even after the cancellation of search. Yeah. And that's clear from the record. Let's fast forward here to like 25 years later, and all of a sudden you, you decide you're going to investigate the Shag Harbor incident. What made you decide to tackle this case? Well, you know, in the early 90s, um, I saw a, a rebroadcast, a rerunning of the old Unsolved Mysteries uh, episode that dealt with the Roswell case, right? And that was my first exposure to it. And I watched it, and I found it very interesting. But I thought it was frustrating, too, at the end. It ends with, uh, you know, the government saying, well, you know, could have been a weather balloon, nothing to it, you know, and yeah. that's where it seemed to sit. And investigators didn't seem to be able to take it past that. Well, I have my personal memory of Shag Harbor. My grandfather was one of the non-reporting eyewitnesses. I saw a UFO, my only sighting, the same night when I was 12 here in Dartmouth. And there was a string of sightings in between. And I knew that this was a genuine incident. And the thing was that, you know, even though they didn't find the object responsible, that even after the search was closed, the government said, well, it probably was a UFO. Well, why had I never heard about this? Why was there no books? Yeah. Uh, and then when I seen Stanton's name affixed to it, I, I was aware that he was now a, a living candidate, not far from me, in Frederick and New Brunswick. And I just called the long distance operator and found his number and called him up and asked if he knew about Shag Harbor, and he didn't. And uh, But he listened to the whole story and said, look, I can tell by the amount of detail you have there's something to it. You should look in. He says, if you're interested... He says, uh, I could tell you, you're probably in luck here. And he gave me some very simple pointers on how to start, and that's really where it all began. He was very gracious with his time and his advice. Simple things, Tim. Like he told me, like, you know what? He said, fishermen don't move. Think about it. Once I found the press on it and had the date, you know, from over in the library for microfilm, 
uh, I could simply look up these men, their names were all in as witnesses, and find them, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the Burke Gaffney collection at the local university had a lot of documents to deal with it. Remember, you know, he had been an, an investigator for the government, right? Eventually, I tracked down the RCMP officers who are on scene. They wrote reports. They were professional witnesses, you see? Yeah. And one thing just kept leading to another. And when I, I got the results back from the first access to information request to the government and started to see that the government indeed believed this was real, that it changed policy and even how UFO cases were investigated in this country based on this, I realized it wasn't just another sighting. You know, there was something very solid to this. And, uh, you know, I was just starting to scratch the surface. And one thing led to another. Look, I made lots of mistakes in the beginning. I like to think I learned from them. But I quickly realized persistence paid off. And the help of people like Stanton and many others I could name, uh, you know, who are known, better known in the U.S., uh, uh, particularly in the UFO field, uh, Jan Aldrich, you know, who runs Project 1947, Antonio Unaeus, um, and many others, you know, their advice and their help and early interest and me taking that and just running with it and being persistent, uh, you know, before I knew what I was up to my neck and in, uh, <laughs> in, in, in more than I could probably handle, but others came in eventually. Uh, Don Ledger, whom I wrote Dark Object with, got involved and uh, like I say, many others gave talent and advice. And, you know, I mean, I'm still working on this thing in 2007. Now, would you say that the the documents that you got that was kind of the foundation of the research? Because uh, it sounded like that that was sort of where you you first uh, dove in. Well, um, I'll put it this way: I mean, it, things didn't happen uh, the way they should have chronologically, right? Yeah. Um, one of the advantages I had is that you know Canada. I, I mean, Halifax, Dartmouth. Uh, Halifax is Canada's major military port, right, for the Navy, and um, my best friends and my father. Uh, my father had a Navy career and I knew who had trained the divers who had responded to the underwater search. Uh, so once I found the man who trained them, I was easy, it was easy to get all their names. And I actually had those interviews and data before I ever got the first package of documents from Ottawa. Okay. But very quickly, documents came from our Department of National Defense. There's a division called the uh, Directorate of History. They were very helpful. And when I first opened them, I, I was like stunned to see you know, how significant this was and the kind of impact it had, you know. Yeah. Uh, another package I got from National Archives uh, in Ottawa showed that uh, contained a number of the actual orders between the bases and from the command center in Ottawa and from what's known as Maritime Command here in Halifax. And it was clear when you looked at this that this was the top priority and they were like uh, treating this like in all likelihood it was a vehicle of extraterrestrial origin. And you have to remember, like, this is the height of the Cold War, so that plays into it a bit. Not not so much in the fear factor, but we'll put it this way. Back then, the international limit offshore was only 12 miles. And in those days, there was plenty of Soviet subs out there. Mm -hmm. So it's a very short intercept time to something that's just off the coast, you know? Yeah. So they were trying to keep them away. There were, there were these other concerns, too. And the other thing is, like, say, it's very near these two bases, and the Shelburne base in particular was at the time Canada's most secret base. It was actually a U.S. base on Canadian soil, and its purpose was that it was the coordination center for submarine detection in the whole Atlantic Ocean. So if you get something unknown, it could be from anywhere splashing down the water a few miles away, I'm going to tell you they were on high alert. <laughs> they were very busy.
very concerned. Let's talk about one aspect of new information that came out of your, your investigation. That was the pilot testimony. That's pretty key and, and provides a whole other perspective on the UFO sighting that night. The thing is, the, the Shag Harbor incident is, is, is really um, the better known part of what, to some researchers, is now being referred to as the night of the UFOs. October the 467 over eastern Canada was just wild. If you were outside, you would have seen something. If you were anywhere from Metro Halifax in the center of the province here down to the southwestern tip, many ships on the Gulf of Maine were calling in, filing UFO reports, and as you mentioned, even aircraft flying over the area. One of those was Air Canada Flight 305, uh, an old Viscount that was flying from Nova Scotia to St. Jean, Quebec. And while it was flying, it suddenly noticed that in the distance there appeared to be an object that they described looking as a, like a giant kite that had a tail of small lights following it, and it was maneuvering, and it seemed quite strange. And then all of a sudden it seemed to be surrounded by large explosions that were, you know, pretty scary and volatile, even though they were distant, and the distance was closing. Um, so they altered their course, and they wrote it up and called in right away and filed a UFO report. Not every day that, that pilots do that, you know, because there are repercussions for the career. But this is just a few hours before the Shag Harbor incident. And like I say, all up and down the coast, you have, in just about every community, you have sightings. Uh, some of them from ships where the whole crew sees it with radar returns and everything, right? And a lot of these, and not all of them, link together up to the Shag Harbor incident, like in the direction, you know, that, that occurred, right? So... Um, again, it, it's the better-known part of a much larger sort of mini-flap of sightings. All of these include structured objects and multiple witnesses. And like I say, but I mean, what's interesting about the, the flight, I'll tell you why that's significant, is like it's not every day that pilots follow an official UFO report. And the thing is, all these occurred like slightly before the Shag Harbor incident, so they, so they weren't influenced by the press. Like they filed before Shag Harbor occurred, right? Yeah. Um, some of the ships offshore that were reporting we reported just an hour, two hours before Shag Harbor happened. So, again, it wasn't like, geez, I wonder if I saw something or if that weird light was it. You know, there was no analysis. They reported immediately. So it was lively in the skies. It sounds like it. And this uh, this sort of stuff like the pilot testimony and what you said, uh, um, reports from ships and stuff, that was that kind of stuff available when uh, when this happened, or was that all like classified and then became available uh, after a bunch of time had passed, and, and then you started doing the investigating? Mm -hmm. The vast majority of the documents that that I discovered, and, and and in the years since, the the vast majority of them were unrestricted, had the lowest priority level, and would have been available to the public at the time if they'd known how to access. Them, right. Yeah. Um, that was typical at the time. Um, when I say that the Air Desk in Ottawa, which investigated UFOs in the 60s in Canada, was was similar to Blue Book, it was, but it was more active than Blue Book. Um, they more tended uh, to really conduct investigations in the field when they seem warranted. Mm -hmm. To put it per in perspective, like for the year 1967, they would have had something like 300 sightings that they bothered to write up and put in their files, right? Yeah. But nine cases... Shag Harbor, of course, being one of them, received an on-site investigation, you know, where, where military men were sent, people were interviewed, equipment was moved, you know. Yeah. Uh, that's more than what Blue Book did. 
Exactly, yeah. So, the, the and look, I've interviewed many of these fellows, and, you know, when you first hear military investigation, you know, you think of cover-up, and I'm not saying that everything was open, but I can tell you the fellows that were assigned that responsibility did good work and took it very seriously. And they often complained to me. They said, look, we wish you had bigger budgets and we could keep three helicopters spread out across Nova Scotia on standby, but it wasn't happening. Yeah. But when they really needed something, like in that case, they were able to get and move equipment and do, you know, it was never what, you never get what you want, right? But investigations were done that had some merit, right? Yeah. Now, not, now there is some documents that, strangely enough, jump from one extreme to the other. They had the unrestricted classification, but there are some that were actually X-Files, and they actually bear that designation on them. Uh, the Royal Canadian Mount of Police in Canada actually used such a thing. It's, it's not just the title of a, of, of a now-defunct fictitious show there, tailing, uh, describing the adventures weekly of Scully and uh, Mulder. You know, I mean, the, there was an X-File system, and, and what that meant was that these were files that were sort of outside the normal classification system. Now, I don't know if these files foresaw the Access Information Act, which is our version of your freedom of information, but I, I think they seen it was a possibility. So the beauty, as far as the authorities are concerned with the X-File, is that unlike a top-secret file, see, if you've got something and it's secret or top-secret, maybe some guy like me comes along years later or a Stan Friedman or somebody like that and has it reviewed and downgraded or sometimes that can even happen on its own. But if it's an X-file, it doesn't exist. You can ask them about it and they're like, they don't know what you're talking about. If it doesn't exist, you can't have it reviewed by the information commissioner, you see. Now, um, I did not find these X-files, of course, in the government files or in the releases, right? Mm -hmm. But there were places such as Burke Gaffney's uh, archive papers at the university. See, when he passed away in his will, like many academics, he bequeathed his his work to the university, right? Yeah. Well, nobody went back to clean that out or to sanitize it, you see? Mm -hmm. And really, I was the first person to go in it other than the two Jesuit fathers responsible for it. Look, it's now an open file, but I had to apply to the Catholic Church and wait six months for permission to go into that. Oh, wow. And it was so specific at the time that when I went in, I used to have to open the boxes in a room with just me in it, and I used to have to put them back in. The archivist herself wasn't allowed to see them. Wow. Yeah, no, this, this, <laughs> it was, you know, and, but nowadays it's an open file. The, the will was eventually reread, and in actual fact, there was no encumbrances, so they, beca you know, they became property university in the end. It was looked into. But at the time, that's how much was involved. And even though he had passed away more than 10 years before, other than these two fellow Jesuit priests, mm -hmm. nobody had been through them. And when I first went in the files, he, there was 26 archive boxes held at the St. Mary's uh, archives of Burke Gaffney. All the UFO files were in box one, but it was full. It was a full archival box, and many of them to do with Shake Harbor were X-Files. Who keeps track of the X-Files up there if they're not if they're not? Well, I don't know. I don't yeah. know. You see, But I can tell you this, is that after I found them, it took me a while to even realize what they were. See, the, the RCMP reports they speak of, they have a very uh, specific form in Canada on UFOs. They certainly did at that time. And they had a form that was called the HQ400Q5 form. <laughs> and what it was is, yeah, at first you would get the date, you know, and then the detachment, and there was a dash and a 400, which meant it was a UFO report. And at the end, you'd have a file number, which would be like 001, 002, or whatever, right? Yeah. If it was an X file, it would have an X added after it. That was the only thing that gave it that indication. But it's just that you wouldn't, it would never end up, you see, in National Archives, right? Mm -hmm. 
when I first got these and it was explained to me by former staffers what they were, I was like, really, that's weird. The next step, Tim, was to figure out why they were X-Files, because in some cases it wasn't obvious. Yeah. In fact, in most cases it wasn't obvious. I thought, well, why would this be so secret and something else, right? But as I, my understanding and as the record grew and the interviews grew about Shag Harbor, it did become clear. And it was this, the Shelburne connection. The, the story that the divers had told me that there was a second simultaneous search for another UFO 25 miles from the impact site. And while the world was watching the search in Shag Harbor, the real case was 25 miles away up near the base. And nobody knew this. The public didn't know. Well, when I went back and I looked at these X-Files, it started to make sense. One of them, for example, is an interview with a sea captain about his UFO sighting off the coast that he has. His 18 men have it, and he has radar returns of four objects. One, just around the time Shea Garber takes off and flies in that direction. Okay. In his statement to police, the last sentence says, I'd never seen anything like it before, but perhaps it's like the thing they're looking for down off Shelburne or Shag Harbor. He knew of the second search, which the public did, and that was never in the media. And I thought, well, how did he know? Well, on his way to the fishing grounds, he sailed through it and seen it, you see. <laughs> so, interesting, that one becomes an X-File, whereas the Shag Harbor ones are all actually open. But anything that mentions Shelburne, you see, which the public didn't know. So that, that's quite interesting, uh, because we have no paperwork on the Shelburne reported case, right? Mm -hmm. But strangely, people in an eye's position that were near there mention it. Now, he didn't know the significance of it, but on the way back in, he was told to avoid it. He'd be a hazard to navigation with his dragger, you see? Yeah. So, uh, very telling. All those papers become X-Files, and if I had not found them in Burke Gaffney's uh, archives, uh, I would we wouldn't be talking about them today. So that was a lucky find. And and when it came out that these X-Files were, were still in his... Uh were part of that archive. Did the Army or anybody try and go and take those back? Because it sounds like they were, like, super, well, super classified. no, no. Well, when I'm discovering these, and by the time I got them, I think it was uh, 95 or so, right? Mm -hmm. Now, uh, I mean, a generation has passed. Yeah. And at this point, Shag Harbor, you know, isn't on your television or isn't, you know. Yeah. And nobody was just doing the follow-up. And look, be honest, when I first sent these requests after I found where to do such a thing, you know, in 93, right? Mm -hmm. and, and I'm writing to the Department of National Defense and to National Archives and these agencies here in Canada. Um, often, like when I wrote to the Department of National Defense, a few days later, um, a researcher on the floor called me up on the telephone and said, um, are you sure about this? Were we there? Did we do something like they were unaware, right? <laughs> now, they're aware of it now, but, you know, at the time, nobody had looked for these, right? Yeah. And they were quite surprised, and I thought, well, God, this, uh, you know, I'll be lucky to see anything, but two days later, uh, this young lady phoned me back and indeed had a dozen good documents and, and some other suggestions and mailed them to me. Uh, but, you know, they were really largely sort of uninterested, right? But uh, And then when connections were made, uh, other files have been found and they've been made public now. I mean, this case is quite famous. At the time, it was off everybody's radar. But, I mean, some of the young staff that were now trainees and researchers on the floor that deal with public requests were unaware of their involvement with UFOs, you know. And at the time, remember, these departments are officially no longer involved, you know, kind of like the, the U.S. Air Force. If you just write them and you ask them, they'll say, well, we're not involved in UFO research anymore. Yeah. Well, certainly Blue Book was canceled. Certainly the public effort doesn't exist, but... You know, if you're a part of certain divisions, I mean, believe me, uh, you know, some near collision that involves an unknown object will be investigated. Yeah, it may not be a UFO investigation, but, you know, 
call it whatever you want, you know, that's what it is. So, uh, you know, that's it. And, and um, uh, it's a bit different now. So, but those were the glory days in the beginning. There were lots of documents, <laughs> you know. They're harder to come by, but they still surface occasionally, right? Now, there were four primary sources of documents on these. Department of National Defense, National Archives, the Burke Gaffney Archives, but one of the other great sources was an early APRO. Um, that used to be the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization, yep. now defunct American UFO group. Mm -hmm. There was a great preliminary report done for the late Jim Lorenzen, who headed that that organization. Yep. And it was discovered by again Jan Aldrich, the researcher responsible more than anybody for Project 1947, a great resource you have in the U.S., right? Mm -hmm. And he found this, and he, he sent it right to me. And it actually had the most detailed report of all, because that local APRO investigator got on the phone in the early days, before there was any censoring, and would just, uh, you know, went as best he could at every spokesman and every person and got them to talk. And there was, uh, it, it's actually one of the, the fourth, and perhaps in some ways, the, one of the more important resources we use to get the details. Yeah. You know? And those details, you know, it's great they were written down, Tim, because, you know, some, you, you find witnesses today and, like, you know, memory's a very plastic, soft thing, right? Even the divers, and I'd seen their name on some of the orders, you know, they were there. They couldn't even remember the year, and they were trying to be helpful, you know? Yeah. I, I mean, these guys, you remember, they were told to forget it, you know, loose lips, sink ships, the Cold War is on, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, it's hard to believe, but they couldn't even remember the year, and they guessed 62 when it was 67, this kind of thing. And these are people that are trying to be helpful. <laughs> so, you know, so when anybody writes something down, you go with that written record, you know, in the press or the statement at the time, because believe me, memory, uh, it's a very soft thing. We've all gone back to that hill that we used to sled down and are just amazed how small it is, <laughs> how big it is in our memory, right? So, exactly. Yeah. And then you alluded to here uh, what seems to be what has come out in the last uh, 10 years since you've been doing the research is that there was more going on in that area than than we thought than they thought at the time that the, even though it looked like there was just a search going on at Shag Harbor there was also another search going on about 25 miles away uh, northwest i believe mm -hmm. um why don't you talk about that Shelburne search because it sounds like that's the one that really was the UFO search mm -hmm. well w one of the problems with the Shag Harbor incident is that you know it, it was some time before navy divers were on the scene right and certainly all the other UFO incidents, and, and some who weren't reported, were quickly pushed aside, and Shag Harbor became forefront to the media's attention, right? Um, they first arrived on the scene on, on Friday, October the 6th, and they dove all day that day. Now, this was a low-tech search. These were divers that were from what was known as the Fleet Diving Unit in Halifax. Yep also known as the Granby Divers. Uh, you know, their, their designation on their hats would have been HMCS Granby, Her Majesty's Canadian Ship Granby, which was one of the big diving tenders. They didn't take that down there. They hired a local boat after they, they had a Coast Guard boat for the first day. And look, they, they dove. It was basically the effort was pairs of divers going down together with flashlights. Okay, There were seven of them all together, and they kept this up through the daylight hours. They checked they laid out a grid pattern that ran from the initial impact site to the last known surface position. Now, the world watched this. There was, you know, film footage that was on CBC television news in the day, mm -hmm. and lots of people sitting around the shoreline watching this effort. But in some ways, this played into the authorities' hands, I believe, because, look, Canada 
1967 wasn't New Mexico in 47. You just couldn't push everybody away and say nothing here, you know, go home or, you know, cordon off the area, right? Things were more open. And the thing is, um, in some ways it played in their hands because it's been suggested to me that what better way to cover up uh, a UFO attempted recovery operation 25 miles away than everybody have everybody in the world looking at a UFO crash site, which they're going to want to do. Yeah. Mind you, they had to search there anyway. There could have been debris, mm-hmm. unique trauma to the bottom, other things, things that I still look for in 1995 when I did my underwater search with sightings. But the real story, unknown to the public, I was told, according to the divers, was 25 miles away, less than a mile offshore from the Shelburne base, which, as I said earlier, was the coordination center for submarine detection in the Atlantic. Mm-hmm. Ships quickly assembled over there, and what they saw on the bottom when divers went down and dropped cameras was uh, two objects there, one loaning assistance to the other, and they described there being activity of some beans down there. Once this was detected, they were told simply to observe and not interfere. They did so for a week, at which time these objects began to move, went down the coast of the Gulf of Maine, surfaced, and flew away. Now, none of that Shelburne story has the documentation of the Shag Harbor crash site or the belief or search for a UFO there, right? Yeah. But there are secondary things that show that this story could very well be true. Like I mentioned earlier, some of the X-Files allude that there was indeed a second search, though it wasn't publicly known or admitted to, okay? The other thing is that exactly one week later to the hour, two sets of lights are seen coming up out of the water in Shag Harbor and flying away. And that was reported, and Mountie saw that again, too. So, you know, it fits the diver's story like a glove, right? Yeah. And I actually got that story from them before I had these documents or knew of the second sighting. And by the way, even that second sighting made the National Enquirer. So, you know, it wasn't just some little thing I found and made it fit, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so those things, although they're not official, do tend to support the diver's story of the second simultaneous search effort. But, again, bear in mind, there's nothing official. Look, we have tons of documents that say, yes, the, the government believed a UFO crashed in Shag Harbor. Many people seen it, including Mounties, and we searched. Uh, the Shelburne story at this point is only a story, but there were certainly documents that allude there was a second search area, though there is no official paperwork to back that part up. And can you uh, extrapolate on, on uh, what the diver said about the creatures working on the object and beings being down there uh I'm sure that's obviously pretty sensational stuff. So, uh, well, uh, what kind that of part, that there? part of the testimony from them to me was in a personal interview, face to face, and there was there was witnesses there with me that heard this. I wasn't alone, and they had trouble talking about that, you know, because like, as they said, that was the black box aspect of the case, right? Yeah, and they were very reluctant, and it was like it was a bit like pulling teeth, but. Uh, the way they put it is there was no doubt. You know, we were down there. That was no Russian sub. That was no experimental thing. You know, that whatever it was, it wasn't from here. Yeah. And once we seen it, we're that close. We were told, you know, that's, you know, we went up and reported that, and they're saying, well, don't do nothing. Leave yeah. the cameras down there. Eventually, apparently, 400 feet of film were shot, which, of course, we don't have, you know. And um, I was even told who the naval photographer was, and I went to his door in Ottawa. And all he said, he would add nothing to it. He said, whatever they told you is true. Close the door. 
Well, what they simply said was there was activity on there. We seen beams, and they were going. And you know, when you try to get more detail out of them, it was weird. Obviously, it bothered these guys, and it was hard to tell whether the, the sort of pain and talking about that they were suffering had to do with maybe they were violating some security oath, or it's just traumatic. I often had the impression that perhaps something happened down there, and there was loss of life. Because I mean, these guys look. These guys did some pretty nasty work hauling dead bodies that have crashed airplanes and you know yeah. they love to talk that kind of stuff and you know if there is such a thing as iron men they were it and yet they had trouble talking about this did they ever describe the creatures or the beings as no, no nothing like no, that no and when you push them in that direction they would look at the floor and sort of wave their hand like like appeared to be troubled wow yeah now this is like 26 years later i found them, right and, and like I say, these are guys that you know they they haul their coworkers dead out of planes. And, you know, like a diver does some pretty unsavory work at times. You oh, know? definitely, yeah. And this seemed to be difficult to talk about. And you have no idea where that film ended up, huh? They don't even. Do they? Well, no, yeah. no. There's no. Uh, you know, the whole trick to find in these falls, even the paperwork, is coming up with file names and locations, right? Yeah. Um, no. But, you know, from that year, there is still a secret file in Ottawa. And this, the, we know this because when I was in Ottawa, and, and in 93, I did an on-site search there for, for paper records that could not be transferred to Halifax that are kept, you know, in reference only. Yeah. And just before I went to look at the last box in a, in a section of files that was called Records Group 24, before I could see it, they re- assessed that box. It went across the street to, to a military section that goes through it again. And when I got the box, it was described to be as being quite sizable, and I knew how big the file was. When I opened it up, there was only a few files in it, and there was a yellow piece of paper in the bottom attached to the draw sheet, and on that it actually said, this file has been sanitized, and it had the officer's name and date on it. It was that day, right? <laughs> and uh, right on it, it listed things that were taken, and one of the files taken actually said, um, it was called, believe it or not, it said UFO crash 1967, um, uh, target detection and search and, and acquisition. It said 1967, and they had a line drawn through it, and it said top secret, you know, not to be released. So, I mean, gee, I wonder what, what, what event that was, you know. Like, I mean, uh, and I never did get that one. I don't know if it was a piece of paper or film or what it was, you know, but, I mean, it was listed as where many other documents that I'm, I'm not sure their title didn't reveal what they were, but strangely enough, that one did. I mean, you know, UFO crash 1967, you know, target detection acquisition. Well, th there was one other thing. It had a coding number on it. Um, this is really quite funny, and, and sometimes government departments can be a real hoot when you do this work. It had a coding number. I didn't know what it meant. I can still remember the number said dash 3800 dash 10 one and then after that, it had DRBS, and I assume the DRBS meant Defense Research Board here in Canada. So when I got out of that, I called the Defense Research Board, right? Yeah. And I, I had some person that was sitting on the computer for lunch for somebody, and I asked them if they could just tell me what that number meant. And they tapped into the computer, and they go, hmm, isn't that weird? They go, that's a UFO with both radar and visual detection. Huh. So, um, you know, considering it said, you know, the operation and acquisition and everything, I guess that means they got it or tried or, you know, yeah. right? But uh, pretty strange. But, I mean, despite the fact that so much in this is open and it's very different than what we usually see in these UFO crash scenarios, 
there is a black box aspect to this case, and there is a thing that there are things we have yet to get, okay? Yeah. And may never, of course, you know. But it's out there. And when the Shag Harbor incident happened, how extensive was uh, the U.S. involvement in this? Because uh, obviously um, there seems to be sort of the idea that they, yeah. they would work hand-in-hand hand well, with the U.S. Well, they did. They did. And, and there was a lot of cooperation, and, and it only made sense. Like, bear in mind, like, like, again, let's look at the background. You have two U.S. bases on Canadian soil in that corner of Nova Scotia, mm-hmm. right? The former Canadian forces station. Barrington at Back Row, which was a, a NORAD radar facility, that end of the pine tree line, you know, since it's just automated. I mean, everybody knows about the dew line, but there's a mid-Canada line and a pine tree line. Back Row was that end of the pine tree line. And just a few miles away, you had Shelburne, and that was the coordination center for submarine detection in the Atlantic. It was hard linked with Argentia, Newfoundland, and Key West, Florida, and they had microphoned the whole Atlantic Ocean. Oh, wow. And they also had a grid out there called the MAD grid, stood for Magnetic Anomaly Detection. So I imagine they knew where this thing was and where it moved. So, you know, when the, so I'm sure that by the time the Navy divers reached Shag Harbors, they told me they knew it wasn't there anymore. Yeah. But they had a look there, too. There might have been debris. There might have been this. Again, the research, according to them, was going on at Shelburne. Now, this is according to them. I don't have that on paper. We do know they were looking in Shag Harbor. The divers tell me they were also looking in Shelburne. Um, so American involvement. You know, you have those two bases here. They were involved in the search effort, right? I mean, our shared defense out over the Gulf of Maine. At the time, there was a, a U.S. carrier group there practicing for Vietnam. They got involved in the search and flew high-altitude missions over and took photos from there. And that was admitted in that Apple report. You know, the spokesman was named, the officer that admitted it. You know, it's all in that, the, the one that we gained from Jan Aldrich there, right? Yeah. So they were searching, right? Uh, people that were flying aircraft uh, over the area and dropping sonar movies in the search for this in the next few days talk about uh, they were doing more interaction into American airspace than usual, and their planes were entering ours going back and forth to try to make a complete search grid, right? Now, those things would happen occasionally in search and rescue. They used to have to ask for clearance for each time you passed in. That had been waived, and they were freely moving between your and our airspace here, right? Yeah. So it was it was an exceptional thing. There were certain people who were brought off course here in Nova Scotia from another base that were brought into the search effort. So, you know, they were looking. They were looking hard and, and all and many of those aspects like that involved US staff, right? Um like I say, those bases at the time were, were they were actually a shared facility. Before nineteen sixty two they would have flown the American flag only. Yeah. And in sixty seven those bases flew both Old Glory and Canada's at that time almost new flag, and you know it was a 50/50 staff basis, you know, set up through NORAD, right? But so you had American personnel working from the two bases, you had American personnel from bases in Maine and from that carrier group flying over the area. So you know, lots of U.S. involvement. Then when you look at the change of story, one of the only people who ever changed the story. Uh, the lightkeeper on Bon Portage Island now claims that he did find an artifact and turned it over to U.S. officials yeah. under orders of the Canadian Coast Guard. And I'm, I am still trying to find if that's indeed the case, if there was notes in his logbook or whatever, the Canadian Coast Guard claims to have lost all those records. <laughs> that's their official stance, and I have paperwork in the cover letter saying that. But that that's continuing, and in fact, they're... I'm about to start an effort where I make a complaint about that, and we'll see where that takes us. I'll start with the information commissioner. It could potentially be a court case within a year, so I don't know. You know, but I mean, I, I'm still. This is still an active investigation. 
the case remains open and unsolved. And the official stance in the paperwork is still that they were searching for a UFO and they didn't get it. And there was no reason to think it was anything conventional. One of the things that, that Stan Friedman talks about with the Roswell case is the, uh, the race with the undertaker, if you will, uh, trying to get witnesses before, before they pass on. And uh, obviously you have a 20-year advantage, I guess, on that because uh, the Shy Harbor incident occurred in 67, not 47 like Roswell. So maybe you have less of a problem with that. But it, time is wearing time is going forward so it's obviously going to become a problem but but how how do you uh how do you deal with that and how, are there are there new witnesses coming forward well yeah there are i mean and and as lucky as we've been in as much work as myself and people like don ledger have done there are still people we'd like to have talked to that you know have yet to be located or sometimes it takes a few years for them to change your mind and be willing to talk right um, we haven't quite had a race against the undertaker. It's been a concern, and a couple times that problem has reared its ugly head. For the most part, not, because like to say, when I started, we had a 20-year advantage on when Roswell was first looked into, right? Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, when it has occurred, it's, it's, it's been a problem at, at some bad times. For example, one of the people I would love to have chatted with was the former commanding officer of the uh, uh, Shelburne base, and when I finally located him, um, other members of his family took the phone to tell me he passed away three days before. Oh, man. Unfortunate. That's one of the few times it was like in a real key position like that, right? Yeah. But for the most part, no. I mean, I have talked to all three of the RCMP officers on the, on the scene, the seven reporting eyewitnesses that initially reported, the three men who were on the first Coast Guard boat to respond. Uh, in fact, just days ago, I, I spoke to one of them. And, um, you know, we've been lucky. And, of course, many of them, and there's a huge amount of non-reporting witnesses. Yeah. And, in fact, it's interesting, the Shag Harbor incident falls into that ideal ratio. You know, UFO researchers would often tell you that for every witness that reports, you'll find 10 that didn't. Mm-hmm. Seven reported initially that night, and on last count, my witness interview list is up around 70 oh wow <laughs> of those who you know seen it firsthand right so there's been a couple of key times when yes the undertaker you know issue has come up you know the people are no longer with us i would like to talk to for the most part though it's not near the problem it's been in roswell and i we have found most of the people we wanted to yeah and so uh you know and and that that was a blessing um and then as the as the principal investigator of the Shag Harbor incident and the guy who really kind of put it on the map, um, how much do you have to deal with uh, ill-informed media getting involved, the, the skeptics who always seem to conveniently get the facts mm-hmm. wrong when they debunk the cases right. and, and that kind of stuff? I mean, does that get on your nerves, and, and how um, often do you have to deal with that? It, 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 it happens occasionally. Um, I, I like to think I've gotten better at dealing with it. <laughs> It's not a big problem, right? Most people, if if they do the research or look at this case, realize that it was something serious and it's been treated serious, right? Yeah. There hasn't been, a, you know, it hasn't been attacked. Was it Stan likes to call the noisy negativists? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, look, when I've given lectures in the U.S., I, I've been surprised. I've been almost disappointed, to be honest, but few have tackled me. I think they realize when they hear me speak, I'm... I'm fairly well researched. My memory is largely intact, right? And, you know, when they point out something and have a question, I can usually answer it, right? Yeah. And, you know, for somebody that tries to make a ridiculous statement, I love to crush the question when I can, and I often can, you know? If I don't know something, I'm not afraid to say I don't know or if I made a mistake. And I think that's helped. But, look, um, there's not been a lot of that. 
when it does happen, it's usually the, the result of somebody wanting to do a very limited segment on it, you know, as part of under the umbrella of some silly show, you know, on the paranormal or something. Yeah. In which case, I usually don't get involved. But I, I've yet to have anybody attack it or completely dismiss it. I mean, there have been better and poorer treatments of the subject matter. But it, it, for me, it's not a big problem. And, you know, if they, they come at me silly, they start realizing it's serious. And if they look at the material, they realize it is. It's not not a big issue. But, uh, um, you know, you deal with those things. Uh, the other thing is I'm kind of prepared now. When somebody asks a question or they want to do a treatment, you know, I have answers and, and overviews that fit a one-minute treatment, a five-minute treatment, or an hour treatment, you know, and I yeah. think I've gotten better at giving what they want, you know. I mean, that helps, too, but, I mean, there are people I say no to occasionally, and it's usually because, you know, they're trying to boil it down just too much or it's under the umbrella of something silly, you know. I mean, you know, exactly. that happens. It's not been a big issue, you know, to be honest. Not Not for me, but... Uh, when you get somebody calling, they're irritating. They know how to do it, you know. <laughs> yeah. One of the things we were talking about before we went on the air was this uh, new, I guess it's new now, new case in uh, Prince Edward Island, which is where my family has a lot of, I have a lot of family up there and vacation yeah. time a lot uh, up in up in PEI. So uh, talk a little bit about this Prince Edward Island incident that you, you said that you thought was uh, going to be or it was a pretty solid case. Well, it, it, it appears to be. It, it's one that's been interesting. I tried to look into it a couple times with my spare time when I'm not working on others. Um, it's not very well known to the public. It's gotten a little attention lately because it's been included in, uh, amongst many other Canadian cases, in a book called The Canadian UFO Report, written by Chris Rakowski and Jeff Dittman, two well-known UFO researchers up here. It's an excellent book. It's got a good chapter, which has the most information so far on the Ebenezer case, right? Mm -hmm. But it's another case, it's a landing case where something landed on the property of a resident near Ebenezer, a small village outside Charlottetown, the only real city on the island. Yeah. Technically, Summerside is, but these are small communities, right? Mm -hmm. And um, the nearby residents called RCMP. They responded to the scene, and it appears now that perhaps the military recovered something and put it away. And so far... Um, there's not been a whole lot of in-depth research, and like, say, Rakowski's managed to bring together the little bit that have been brought together from a lot of people yeah. and some recently released documents from our national archives, and it does paint a picture that, uh, and, and certainly there's a lot of room in it that obviously there's some gaps to fill in, and uh, uh, it does look like another case where something indeed physical did land on the ground and was recovered, and it's largely unknown. It was in the media at the time, but it's another one of these cases where nobody could, you know, come up with the definitive answers, and again, it just slipped out of the public's mind. Mm -hmm. But with the release of these documents and the involvement, again, once again, of the Rescue Coordination Center and RCMP and the military, it does appear there was something going on, right? Yeah. Now, there's been some practical explanations uh, suggested for it, like an errant sea spirit barrel missile from a Navy ship and a meteorite. And there was a meteorite shower the day before and these kinds of things. But it's one of these cases when you look at all the observed facts that were reported that we are certain of, yeah. none of those explanations suffice. It's like Shag Harbor. You can say, well, maybe it was a flare. Maybe it was this. Maybe it was that. You make the suggestion, I'll tell you why it couldn't be. Yeah. You know, not not just based on opinion, but based, based on the composite observed facts. And at this point, it's a teaser. It's a case where I'm hoping to do some more research on, and I'm sure others are here in Canada. And, you know, in a few years, and with a bit of luck and certainly some hard work, uh, this may become as significant as Shag Harbor. It's a little early to say. I'd like to think it is. It looks promising. 
Uh, what year was that? Uh, uh, 1990. Oh, wow. So, it's you know, so, so, yeah, again, uh, you know, certainly within people's memory. In fact, uh, you know, I, occasionally when people see one of my television shows and, and just tracks me down by phone, I've had people call and report a sighting they've seen back then. They don't know what's at. They probably saw it from the distance. Yeah. So it seems to have been widely observed. And, in fact, it was even seen across here in Nova Scotia from across the water. PEI is like, you know, there's, there's a narrow uh, strait between, might be, varies from 9 to 14 miles across, right? Yeah. And people seem to see it on both sides. And one of the things that's clear when you look at the documents from the Rescue Coordination Center, it was widely reported. So, you know, so I, I'm hoping this one progresses too, you know. Yeah. And then uh, this is a big picture question here uh, as we head towards the end, and that's about Canadian ufology. Did it uh, develop sort of in tandem with American ufology? Because you said, you know, like there was an APRO guy up there, and I know they yeah. move on yeah. Canada branches. Is, is it uh, sort of uh, like uh, that kind of thing? Yeah. Um, in the early years, it pretty much mir mirrored the American situation, mm -hmm. both both in the, you know, how authorities went about it and also, you know, how the civilian groups went about it. Yeah. But from the mid-late 60s on, as time went on, the, it kind of diverged, and Canada kind of found its own way. Okay. And when you think about it, I mean, in 69, when the Condon Report came out mm -hmm. uh, and officially ended the uh, United States Air Force's involvement, in, at least publicly, with UFO cases and the phenomena, that, you know, it kind of took the window of the sails of the big groups at the time, and it, things kind of ended up in disarray. Yeah. And uh, in Canada, it was actually quite different. Um, because of cases like Shag Harbor and the Stephen Mich Michela case out in the prairies, um, it was decided in Ottawa in 1968 that UFO investigations should be taken away from the military <laughs> and be given to Canada's National Research Council for serious scientific study, which it was. And they would call on military field units and anything else they needed as needed. Yeah. And in the beginning, that was done. But over the years, that effort kept getting watered down. And as staff retired, it wasn't being passed on to new people. Mm -hmm. And by 1999, the, the effort had just evaporated away and been penny-pinched into nothing. And officially, they got out of the business then. But for some time through the 60s, 70s, and 80s, certainly Canada's National Research Council investigated cases, and there were a few staff who, again, did a pretty good job. But they never did call on the field units that needed as much as they could have, you know. It probably would have been better to leave it with the military, because I know the core of people there did a pretty fair job. So, again, from 67, 68, 69, our history and the way that was handled in this country starts to diverge from, before that time, would have closely followed the American model. Yeah. After that, it diverged more and more. But in the end, strangely enough, we're, we're again pretty much in the same place, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, of course, nowadays, you know, the public has a greater knowledge. Information shared quickly on the Internet. It's been both a good thing and a bad thing. I largely kind of try to avoid it. I think sometimes everybody tries to investigate these things from the armchair, which doesn't work well. Mm -hmm. um, look, I'll give you one quick example of that. I'm going to tell you something. When you communicate by email... You can get some raw data, right? Yeah. But even to use the telephone is often work to my advantage. You'll talk to a witness, and he's forgetful, and sometimes I'll hear his wife in the background tapping uh, someone on the shoulder saying, oh, dear, you remember that was the night that. Well, I would have lost that data if I hadn't heard that and got the wife on the phone, mm -hmm. you know? Um, the other thing is face-to-face. -face. You know, you, you can sometimes pick up things you wouldn't even pick up in the voice or certainly not in the email, you know, in terms of deception or, you know. Yeah. 
you have to get out of the armchair in these cases with depth and knock on doors and tromp through the woods and, uh, you know, uh, the other thing is like if you simply rely on, you know, what everybody else is doing, you know, there's a place in this, I think, for us rugged individuals with the odd original idea. <laughs> exactly. And, and, you know, you got to do that, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, the trouble is many people, you know, the Internet is a great tool, and I use it. Look, but, I mean, when you get on there and these listservs and people argue and fight about the facts, sometimes it ends up that, uh, unfortunately, ufologists will sometimes end up like a lot of medieval monks who are sitting together arguing vehemently about how many angels sit on the head of a pin. Yeah. What does it matter? Who cares? No, get out of the chair, get the data, show us what you got, and we can accept or reject it or build on it, you know, the way it used to be done. What's next for Chris Stiles? What do you have on your plate uh, coming up in the future? Well, Shag Harbor goes on for me. Yeah. And, um, you know, I'm still, uh, for example, I may even do an underwater search in the future if there's enough interest, right? Mm -hmm. There is a, a... an unusual sonar target that was not properly investigated when I did my 95 search. The chance of physical evidence still beyond the parameters of the initial naval search in my last effort in 1995 still exists. The premise is valid today. Yeah. Considering the relatively low cost, if I can drum up enough money interest, that's one thing. But there's more doors to knock on, more lines to draw, more connections to be made with Shag Harbor, and other classic cases here in Lane, Canada. I've also spent a fair time looking at the European model and seeing some of these cases and certainly other encounter cases through the Valley sort of model of reality transformation, Yeah, which interests me. And I think you have to remember, UFO phenomenon is a worldwide phenomenon, and sometimes you can spend too much time looking at the North American way of doing things. Exactly. So Chris here is looking in that direction and perhaps splashing around in the water one more time for Shag Harbor. And, uh, you know, like you mentioned earlier, Ebenezer and other cases. Basically, I like the meat and potatoes cases where you have multiple witnesses, government reports, something that you can get get your teeth into, right? Yeah. But um, I must admit, at times it, it, it's hard to believe that Shag has gone as far as it did. I remember when I looked in. I mean, I always believed it would, but, um, again, nobody seems to have been able to explain it or explain it away, and it still remains the world's only UFO crash scenario that is supported in that interpretation. My government documents here in Canada are freely available. There's absolutely no controversy as to their origin or their authenticity. Are you surprised just how big the Shag Harbor thing got? It sounds like you kind of are. And, and the Shag Harbor's pretty surprised, too. <laughs> <laughs> and the communities had, you know, they've become comfortable with it and adjusted. And unfortunately, yes, people do sell T-shirts there and that. I mean, in the beginning when I used to go down, I'd go in somewhere to talk to somebody. I used to be asked to leave. Uh, it's changed. And I knew that the, the day would come when that would happen. Um, for the most part, it's done in a tasteful way and, um, you know, they've largely avoided the silly season stuff. And, um, you know, that's all you can hope for. But I think that if the case is to be remain current and of interest, there is more work to be done on it, even in the physical sense. I mean, in how many places is there good reason to still go and look and dive and look for a a UFO or flying saucer? I mean, you know, it's an opportunity, right? Mm -hmm. So I I keep the door open for that and for other things. But, uh, yes, I'm still surprised. I mean, the other thing, Tim, was how quick it came out of the blocks, right? Yeah. And to put this in perspective, look, I started looking into this thing seriously in very early in 1993, right? Mm-hmm. But 
before 1994, I never flew in an aircraft. Oh, wow. And now I've been <laughs> all over the place talking about this thing, and uh, I'm, I'm very surprised, you know. like, And, and I, I think even more surprised was when I started, it was just out of personal interest. Yeah. And I think many times when I look at some of the disappointments, despite all the good things that happened, if, it, if I didn't have that honest, true personal, if I wasn't passionate about it, I would have given up a long time ago. You know, and some people can suggest, oh, well, why wouldn't you do it? You had a trip to Toronto or New York or you, you know, don't believe me. <laughs> if it wasn't, I, I don't like going anywhere when i got to take three different airplanes. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I don't like it that much, but I can tell you. if You know, when we, you hear the people that, uh, you know, some of the accusations made. Look, if you didn't have uh, a, a true passion for this, you wouldn't persist. You wouldn't keep up, you know. Yeah. And, uh, you know, to me, that's a, what, what it's all about. Look, this all comes under the bigger thing of are we alone to me, right? Mm -hmm. And to me, it doesn't matter where the answer comes from the people at SETI or some lucky individual or space or from the UFO phenomena. That's, that's really what we're trying to prove here. Now, I know many of us and the believers, they don't require that. But I would like to find the kind of evidence that I could drag into a skeptic and they can't deny it, right? Yeah. It's like I've often said when I'm on the stage doing a, a, a live presentation. I'd love to walk out someday with the door off this thing and drop it on the stage, and it makes a loud clang. That's when I'll be happy. And what about uh, upcoming speaking engagements and that kind of thing? I know uh, you're going to be uh, down here in the Boston Well, other, uh, yes. Other than a local effort, one of the things that's coming up for the 40th anniversary is this October, just days afterwards, I'm going to be in the Boston area. I believe it's, what, Watertown? Yeah. There's um, – there's, an event there known as the what is it the U Massachusetts Monster Mash is that it if I got yeah, that right yeah it's like a it's a weekend thing uh, one night is uh, more cryptozoology based right. and, then and apparently I'm, I'm going to be a keynote speaker there and Don Ledger's coming down and doing a presentation that, who co-authored that I wrote the book with and uh, Michael McDonald a Canadian filmmaker who produced a feature documentary on Shag and other UFO works is going to be there uh, selling some of his works things that are not available in the U S so. Um, hopefully we have a good time and people enjoy the presentation and uh, I already received a lot of good food feedback where people seem quite interested in what we have to offer and I'm sure it'll be a great time. I've always enjoyed driving down through New England and it's going to be a driving trip this time and I'm very much looking forward to it. Plus checking out some of the music stores, one of my other hobbies and I can hardly wait. But yeah, this October, uh, looking forward to it in the greater Boston area to talk about Shag Harbor and the 40th anniversary and all other things UFO, Tim. Nice. And I'll put a link up to uh, to the Monster Mash website. On and the I hope to see you there. Get a chance yes, to meet. you will see me there. I, I owe you a dinner for sure. <laughs> yeah, and there are several other people that I, I haven't met yet in the field that are at this point just a voice on the phone, and I'm very much looking forward to going down. Yeah, so it's for me, it's a great, it'll be a great UFO event and a social event, and uh, uh, can't wait. Awesome, awesome. Well, Chris, uh, thank you very much for coming on the show. It should be noted here that we we had already taped an interview, but the uh, the technical difficulties uh, crashed on the interview that we'd done back in April. So you were kind enough to come back on here and do a whole new interview, and, and uh, I tremendously appreciate that. I well, mean, I believe in doing things right, and look, I thank you for your interest. Well, thank you very much for coming on the show. Um, you've done this tremendous work. If not for you, then no one would even have heard of the Shy Harbor incident. So. Um, I mean, we need more ufologists like you doing the legwork, interviewing the witnesses, getting the documents, and uh, really 
hammering these cases and and finding the really good cases. And uh, like I said, without without Chris Stiles, there probably wouldn't be any Shag Harbor incident. We wouldn't know about it, and we wouldn't even be having this conversation. So. And I, I'm convinced there are more cases like that out there. Awesome. Everybody should be looking at those classy cases that are largely unknown. There's yeah. more out there. Definitely, definitely. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for coming on the show. That, thank you. There you have it, folks. That does it for this week's edition of Been All of America Audio. Big, big thanks to Chris Stiles for coming on the show. Chris does not have a website, but you can reach him at his email address, shagharbor at hotmail.com, S-H-A-G-H-A-R-B-O-U-R at hotmail.com. Moving right along now, it's time for the return of Been All of America Audio listener feedback. In light of last week's somewhat depressing end cap to the show, we're going with a very uplifting email here for our listener feedback, and it comes from Craig in Laurel, Maryland. Here's what Craig has to say. I am constantly impressed with the shows you are cranking out. For your critics, I would say this. Opinions are like assholes. Everybody's got one. For you, I would say, stick with what you've got here. You're doing great. Part of what I like most about your show is the raw, underground feel to it. Once a show gets too polished, I think it loses some of its edge. C2C may wish they were still in the cave, but with their 40 minutes of commercials and 10 minutes of content, they have truly lost their spirit. You've got it. Don't let the critics talk you out of it. Looking forward to next week's show. Signed, Craig in Laurel, Maryland. Thank you very much for writing in, Craig. Thank you so much for your kind words. I appreciate what you have to say, and I think that part of the appeal of BOA for our vast audience is this raw, underground feel to the program. We don't have the backing of some fat cat radio conglomerate. We're just a simple little program trying to make ends meet, trying to put out the best stuff we can week in and week out, because I'm an esoteric radio fan, and I know what I want to hear on esoteric radio. And to be quite honest with you, I'm not hearing it on esoteric radio. That's how Banal America Audio was born and became developed. Esoteric radio from an esoteric radio listener for other esoteric radio listeners. That's what BOA Audio is all about. So, thank you so much for the letter, Craig. A very uplifting correspondence that puts a little wind in our sails here as we close out this week's program. If you'd like to be a part of Banal of America Audio listener feedback, there's two ways to go about doing it. Either A, click the contact button in the left-hand side of the screen. Yes, folks, we've moved the menu. By the time you're listening to this, the front page of BanalOfAmerica.com will be all redesigned, all fancy, schmancy, and pretty cool-looking. The contact button will now be on the left-hand side. On the menu, you'll see it. It says Contact. You click that. That'll take you to the contact page with the appropriate information to get in touch with me. Or simply write to boaaudio at hotmail.com, boaaudio at hotmail.com, all one word. Either one of those methods will put your correspondence on the road to being featured on Banal of America Audio listener feedback. Up next, of course, it's the thanks. Big, huge, super huge thanks to the great staff at BanalofAmerica.com, Leslie, Chiron, R. Lee, Joe V., and Tina Senna, for your help and support with the audio series and the website. Top-notch reading material, week in, week out. They're providing it. You never know what you're going to find at BanalofAmerica.com, but you can be certain... It'll be handcrafted esoterica from some of the finest minds in the field. If you're only listening to the radio program and you're not reading the columns at BOA, you're only getting half the story. 
check out their columns. They are fantastic, and you can find them at BOA, plus the vast archive of columns from each of these great writers. Banalofamerica.com, make it a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. If you're a long-time Banal of America audio listener or an appreciative newcomer and you want to help support the audio series or just say, hey, thanks for a fantastic season two so far, there's a way you can do it. Go to banalofamerica.com, click the PayPal button, it's right there in the center of the screen with this new front page redesign, and make a donation. No donation is too small, and all donations go towards keeping banalofamerica.com and BOA Audio up and running and paying the bills for the audio series. Whatever you can do to help will be greatly appreciated. Next week on the program, it's another UFO episode. I like to try and buffer them a little bit, but the way the schedule seems to be working out for us here in the final weeks, it's not going to happen that way. So it's going to be back-to-back UFO episodes, and it's going to be back-to-back quality UFO episodes, because next week's guest is Robert Hastings, whose specialization is the UFO nukes connection. Robert Hastings has spent the last 30 years looking at the strange correlation between UFO sightings and nuclear bases. He'll share his research with BOA Audio as we discuss what made him decide to focus on this aspect of the UFO phenomenon, how Robert cultivates his whistleblower testimony, his chagrin with FOIA requests, contemporary UFO slash nuke sightings, discussion of the 1967 Maelstrom base case and the 1964 Big Sur case, plus big picture speculation on what it all might mean. The UFO Nukes Connection, Robert Hastings, next week on Banal of America Audio, Be There or Be Square. And on that note, we wrap it up here for the week. Thank you so much for listening, folks. You'll be hearing from me next week. Until then, this is Tim Banal, signing off.